0: Visit our website at org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. We are um, going to welcome tonight uh, Roy. <laughs> Yeah, multi-purpose Roy. <laughs> Any person, speaker, timing, yeah. um, And I probably won't take questions because after I speak, usually there are no questions. My name is Roy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Right. I want to uh, thank uh, Sonia for asking me to speak at the last minute I uh, just want to say let's get the I don't have my pictures I kind of systematically destroyed most of my fat pictures yeah. there may be some little yearbook pictures somewhere well, I got thrown out of school for drinking anyway but I was a little fat guy with glasses and I never liked the way I looked but to just get the statistics out of the way my top weight was 280 something that's over 100 pounds over where I am now gained and lost 80 pounds at least three times I've been on all the diets uh I usually go through the food a uh, my first diet was amphetamines, which drove me up the wall, because I like to uh, eat a huge meal and kind of just mellow out, you know, eat a wild bore, and digest it like a python type of thing, and uh, so I didn't like amphetamines, but uh, I dropped 80 pounds on that thing, I got into compulsive exercising, running up and down the stairs, my parents had this apartment that had two levels of these stairs, Gained it all back. Second diet was the Stillman diet, the uh, nothing but protein diet, where you flushed out your kidneys with water. I was I lost eighty pounds on that one. Got into compulsive exercise. and I was at the University of Miami by this time. Um, I got into well. Let me just say that uh, I'm also alcoholic. Uh, flu was actually my first drug. I was a fat kid since the age of seven. I didn't pick up. Alcohol to the ripe old age of 12, but uh, I—it's always difficult to be an alcoholic and compulsive overeater because I, you know, every time I go on these diets, I was craving booze, and I thought light beer was the answer for a while, but uh, you get up to about 12, 16 these cans, and that's a lot of calories. And then I uh, tried to be a vegetarian, live on vodka and mashed potatoes. <laughs> that didn't work. I, you know, I gained weight on that diet. But anyway. So it was a tr- I was really troubling to be a, a, an alcoholic and a compulsive overeater. That Stillman diet, I mean I got into that, that compulsive exercising, I call myself an exercise bulimic. It's just it's the thing about being a compulsive overeater, let me just put a thing on because I'm cold. It's kinda of nippy tonight. Um the thing about being a compulsive overeater is uh, if you go on diets, diets actually work, but the problem is they only work on one level, which is the physical level. So every time I'd lose the weight, you know, I did, wasn't dealing with the emotions that I was eating over, which is primarily fear, insecurity, low self-esteem, the usual suspects. And, and I wasn't dealing with a spiritual void, okay? So I, I'd go on these crazy diets, I'd lose the weight, but the obsession was still there. And the funny thing about these diets, believe me, I'm a, I'm a real experienced dieter, every time the weight would come back, it would come back faster. I'd always gain a few more pounds than the previous. It's kind of like the stock market. You know, you're breaking out the new highs on the charts. You know? And uh, it would come back. I'd always gain more weight. And it, the obsession, uh, it says in the big book that I will chase to the gates of insanity and death somehow the illusion that I can control this thing, and I never could control it. The third diet, I, I mean I was at the University of Miami, I would I got into compulsive exercising, I was literally I was I was a member of the judo club, I was lifting weights, I was swimming about a mile at a clip at the University of Miami pool, and I was running. And all part of this, you know, somehow it'll be a different thing. I remember, at like one point, I got up to like 12 miles in my in Miami, 90 degree heat, 90 degree humidity, in in the middle of the day when nobody was running. This is way back then. Actually, I don't want to date myself. <laughs> I go back, and uh, it was before the running craze fully hit. You know, people were just looking was like nuts. And I wasn't even doing a scenic run. It was like around the practice uh, soccer field at the University of Miami which is just basically a rectangle. So I'm running 12 miles like a, a rat in a maze. You know, like, this time it'll be different. This time I won't gain the weight. I guess that's what I thought. I mean, this time I won't want to eat. I'll get down to a magic number. This time I'll find a magic food plant. I won't gain the weight back. This time it'll be different. Or well, guess what? I, I left the University of Miami, moved back to my native New Jersey, to my native city of Trenton, New Jersey, Town of which it could be said, if you wanted to give the world an endless thicket in Trenton, but uh, back in Trenton, I gained weight back, so now I'm up in the north, you know, and I gained, I'm back up to 280 something. I'm out of control, and uh, the third big diet I went on was the pregnant hormone shock, hormone shots diet. I don't know if you remember now. Some of these diets go out of fancy and then they come back in, but this one was bizarre. I remember this thin grinning osteopath. He had two clinics going full-time, one in Pennsylvania, one in Jersey. And all these fat people would be lined up for these shots, you know. And you pay him 25 bucks. He weighs you in. He takes your blood pressure, gives you this placebo, horseshit, HCG. It was human-chlorian gonadotropin. I'll never forget it. And uh, he gives you this shot, and he's grinning, and he was thin. He was collecting money, you know. and He had these two clinics working. With this gave made a fortune. You know, if, if I wasn't in this program, that's how I'd try to make a living and start a bad diet. So, and I'm lying up with most of these fat women, but some fat men, you know. And I'm on, and he, then he puts you on like a 500 calorie a day diet. So obviously, you could be shoot yourself up with anything, and you're going to lose weight on this thing, you know. And guess and I got into compulsive exercising, of course, and I joined a gym. And now I go from running in 90 degree heat, 90 degree humidity, to where I'm running behind a snowplow with a ski mask on. I got two little eyes, you know, sticking out, and the snowflakes are coming down, and the snowplow's clearing the way, you know, and I'm running in the morning. And, like, the guy comes out on his porch, you know, in a coat to get his paper. You know, and he looks at me out there, sees me behind a snowplow. He thought I was like rocky or something. So, yeah, yeah, you know. He figured I was on the Olympic team or something. I mean, who the hell else but a compulsive overeater is running behind a snowplow in the middle of winter? And you know something? I lost it again. I lost the 80 pounds again. You see, diets work, especially 500 calorie a day diets. And, uh, you know, it was just absurd. I mean, I stopped taking the silly shots, but I started losing the weight with the compulsive exercise. Anyway, I came down, uh, back down to Florida. I, can't, I never could stand cold weather. And to this day, I hate cold weather. And uh, in Miami, I started hitting my bottom. I had a head on collision. The alcohol stuff. Well, actually, uh, uh, oh, you speak for Oh, I don't know what to do. All right, so, all right, well, give me another shot next week or something. Anyway, um, this time, what the hell happened? Oh, yeah. I got on the liquid protein diet. I don't know if you remember that one. This stuff is awful. I mean, if you live on liquid protein, you don't eat any solid food. And like I, I lost like thirty pounds in, in thirty days. There was no problem. I mean, these diets work. You know, the problem is I had absolutely no blood sugar. I remember I was supposed to get like a tennis lesson from this guy, you know. This, and I couldn't lift the racket. I had no blood sugar, you know. And I was sitting in Miami. And it was a Friday night. And all my friends I knew were down in the coconut grove, getting high, getting loaded, chasing the women. And I'm sitting in this apartment, you know. Uh, and uh, I hadn't had solid food in 30 days. And to say that I was hungry, angry, lonely, and tired <laughs> I this I was so tired I couldn't let the tennis rack. And I was sitting alone in this apartment. Hungry is not the word. And, boy, I, and I was pissed off. You know. and I was trying to hold out till Monday, Monday, I will weigh a magic number. I will stop this insanity. I will eat food again, you know, and I'll be okay, you know. And I couldn't hold out to Monday. So I I remember literally having to hold on to the wall, you know, to break the diet because I'd stand up and I'd be dizzy, you know. But I held on to the wall. I made it to my car. I made it around the corner to Dayland. The shopping center was right around the corner of my apartment. And I bought... Two cases of wine and two pizzas. <laughs> and I wound up in jail that night. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's how you break a diet when you're compulsive or even an alcoholic combined. So that led to uh, my the end of my drinking, you know, which lasted it actually lasted a few more months. Uh, but it also led to my coming into AA in nineteen seventy-eight. And I haven't had a drink since my first AA meeting, but um, you know, you come in one 12 step program. Well, anyway, the first thing the gurus and AA said is, kid, if you feel like taking a drink, have something sweet like a candy bar or some ice cream. I said, these guys are brilliant, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started eating. And, like, my childhood, my first disease was compulsive reading, you know, since like, the age of seven and I gained 30 pounds the first month I was sober I was out of control with the food 8 months sober I was on my knees praying I was out of state I was actually in Vermont for a summer school thing I said God I was on my knees you know I'm 8 months sober out of control food I said when I get back to Miami I gotta get to just O.A. you know because you hear about other 12 step programs. you come in one and you hear about other ones you know I don't know why I didn't just go to O.A. in Vermont you know I guess it was was beyond me or something. I was going to Amy. But uh, so I get back to Miami. I'm going to OA. So I get back to Miami. I come into OA. I don't think there was a uh, man at my first meeting. There may have been one other, but I didn't notice him. It a bit, uh, Remember, I was a lot younger yet and a uh, lot... You know, I was a feisty young buck then, but uh, it looked like all these matronly condo commandos from North Miami Beach were there. i like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> these women,
1: you know, and
0: what are they doing with my big book? I had a very, very strange attitude, you know, kind of call alcoholic arrogance, but my first sponsor, she became a Edie, says, she sees me saying the Serenity Press. She says, how do you know the Serenity Press? Well, I'm in AA. Bill Wilson's long lost grandson with eight months of surprise. So uh, she goes, "Well, uh, my name's Edie. I'm a pulse eater. I used to weigh whatever. I've lost ninety pounds and kept it off for five years." She says, and that gets my attention. So that's why we mention our weight loss and show our pictures if we have them here. Ninety pounds and kept it off for five years. Okay, She says I'll be your sponsor. Okay, you know. So in those days, this is 1978. You gotta remember. It was nothing but gray sheet. I mean, O.A. was like... They had a food plan. It came on a gray sheet. You had to write 30 written assignments. I think you had to look up compulsive control and uh, something or other and write about it. And you had these uh, assignments. And then you get 30 days of abstinence and they'd step you up and they'd give you a plant. That's what they used to do in Florida anyway. And uh, and I mean I mean... Let me put it this way. Flexibility was just a little too advanced a concept for Edie at the time. They'd all been on gray sheet, you know, and that meant four ounces of protein, two cups of whatever, you know, rabbit food, which I hated, no milk in my coffee. I had to call her if I wanted to change anything on a food plan. I'd, like, call her up and say, Edie, I'd rather eat a pear than an apple today. And she said, nah, nah, too much sugar in the pear. She never would let me eat a pear. I mean, she was just passing on to me exactly what was given to her. You know, I'm not knocking her. I mean, that was just the mentality, you know. And, like, she didn't realize, like, I'm 20 years younger than them, then. And I'm still running, like, six miles a day and, you know, trying to deal with the obsession on a physical level. And she's putting me on the exact same food plan that all the rest of them are on. Well, it's white knuckle accidents. I mean, I hung in there for about two weeks it wasn't pleasant, folks. She wouldn't let me put milk in my coffee. To this day, I don't, I don't, I can't stand black coffee. I put milk in my coffee. But she wouldn't let me put milk in my coffee. She wouldn't let me eat a pear. She had me on a gray sheet. And it was like this, you know. And I'm off to France, you know, ostensibly study languages. languages language is kind of a hobby of mine. But it really, looking back on it, all in Cuba, that's what the French say, looking back on it, it is uh, it was really running for my problems. You know, I'm eight months sober, I'm two weeks after and I'm basically pretty crazy. I've done, you know, kind of preliminary step work with my first sponsor, maybe Rotten hell. But, uh, in any way, but but... Uh, uh, I'm just him, though, he's dead. No, he's 100% making this a dead person. Um, so I'm on the way to France, you know, and Edie says, uh, well, you know, well, uh, the guys in A were taking bets so that I would get drunk, but there was plenty of AA in Paris. They had no way of knowing that, of course. And uh, there was some O.A. to us. Edie says, pack brown bag of lunch. You know, I called in a diabetic meal to the airlines because uh, I'll let you do that, you know, special meal. But she says, you better be careful. Brown bag of an abstinent lunch. Now, hey, I'm too cool to eat brown bag lunches, you know. So I call up the air on diabetic gun, no problem. Get to the airport, check and counter, diabetic meal, no problem. Get on the stewardess diabetic no problem. Get my seat. All right, so I haven't had, well, I, I ate breakfast about 6 a.m. I'm on the plane. So now it's about 2 p.m., 2 in the afternoon. Now I'm on gray sheet for two weeks, so I've got some sort of starvation hunger going. Plus I've got normal hunger. I haven't eaten breakfast in six. Comes time to pass out the, the diabetic meals. No diabetic meals. So they put something in front of me that wasn't gray sheet. I mean it wasn't even that bad. Well there was maybe a cupcake. I don't know what the hell was on there, but it was like bread, potatoes, you know stuff I hadn't seen in two weeks, you know. I was starving, and I took the first bite, the compulsive bite, and it's true, you know, the first compulsive bite on the plane going to France, and boy, that bread tasted good and taste and so I went for the cupcake or whatever, you know, the airplane food, and I'm on, out of control on the way to Paris with two weeks in OA, you know. So I landed in Paris to study languages, and I'm out of control with the food. And I'm gone to the OA meeting in Paris. I'm going to plenty of AA there. It's no problem. I started two groups last time. I was there six years ago. But um, the OA group in Paris was the shakiest, flakiest OA group that ever existed at the time. This woman, uh, said she started OA there. She was a a French doctor at gynecologist. She did a residency in Atlanta, found the program, and took it back to France. She was French. But she spoke English very well. So she started English-speaking OA. There was no French-speaking. So in OA, is me, Bob, 11 years sober and is thrown up 11 times a day. Uh, we had an anorexic whose parents were psychiatrists, and they just couldn't figure out with all their medical knowledge and training how to spawn this lunatic who's starving herself off the planet. <laughs> So, the, you know, the overeaters are binging, the bulimics are puking, the anorexics are starving. Um, I'm sitting there with eight months of sobriety pontificating about the steps, you know, and quoting from the 12 and 12. And meanwhile, I can't stop eating. And the food's coming on, the clothes are getting tight, you know. I'm out of my mind, you know. So, I'm down in Aix-en-Provence, where I helped start the first aid group there. French. But I'm down in Exodus language school, and I used to go up to Paris on the Midnight Express from Marseille to uh, go to meetings. And uh, I'm, what am I binging on in France, like with all this five-star Michelin food? I'm binging on basically French, can- French Mounds bars, bread, and cheese. That was good bread, good cheese, But it's basically nothing I don't think I could have gotten here, but I'm binging my brains out. I mean, my, my French roommates were watching me make breakfast I buy like a pan ordinaire, which is not the baguette the thin one. A pan looks like a small log. Like a family eats a week on this. I take that pan and I cut it in half. I take a wheel of coulignée, which a French family would take about a week to go through. And I lather it up with French butter, good butter, and I put that I and mean, I eat this thing for breakfast and they'd look at me, they thought I was crazy. You know? And I wouldn't drink wine, which I thought was even crazier. Because I'm in AA, you know? And they'd say, uh, don't you want to do wine with this cheese? I don't know. And they'd say, no, 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 it's fishy water's just fine, you know. I'm eating so I'm lathering up the log and eating. I remember one time uh, one time walking out of the Boulangerie French bakery and I had like a pan sticking out of the bag, you know. And I'm walking to my apartment and I look over my shoulder and I'm and I and by the time I got into the apartment I gnawed the thing down the bag with, like a beaver, you know. So anyway, yeah. I was out of control. And uh, it wasn't. I wasn't a happy camper. I wasn't a happy camper. So I'll, I'm going to talk about my bottom now. I'm going to talk about my bottom, which is funny. And I always talk about this because it is kind of remarkable. I'm in Marseille ready to take the midnight express up to Paris. I'm looking at a French mounds bar. Okay, these call them bounty bars, but it basically is the same as a mounds bar. It's chocolate covered coconut, you know, with all the sugar and stuff. I'm looking at this thing. I've eaten about five of them. So I'm sugared up to here, you know. And, I, it was, it, and I'm waiting for the Midnight Express. I'm going, it's, do you want this thing more than you want accidents? You know, because I had kind of dim memories of sheet abstinence. Believe me, they weren't particularly pleasant memories. But at least I knew there were people who were abstinence somewhere, back in Miami anyway. And, you know, somehow they managed to, like, stop eating compulsively. So I knew that it was possible, but I had this goddamn... I'd already eaten five, you know. I wish I could tell you, like, I threw it away because I was so spiritual. But I, basically, I just didn't want to ha- hassle in French with the, the French kiosk. You know, petit bourgeois in French can be a little bit nippy, you know. And I didn't want to hassle it to get my money back. She probably would have given it to me. I probably wasn't as confident in my French as I am now, but... Uh, I just said, well, fuck it. You know, I've eaten five. You know how compulsive these are. I've eaten five, so what the hell. <laughs> <laughs> Down the hatch, right? <laughs> the old turkey name? Down the hatch. Uh, anyway, but I said to myself, now this, the reason this is important is it was the moment of truth. I said to myself, you know, when I get up in Paris, tomorrow, I want to be abstinent. I really did. I got on the, the train, the Mar- uh, Midnight Express, I slipped on the Couchette, and you know, I never did sleep too well on those things, but... I get in Paris, arrive in the morning, I say, I just want to be accident today. And actually, you know, not even today, I, w- I was in the moment, I will say this, this I just wanted to get some breakfast accident So I go to the brasserie, I order two softball eggs, hold the bread, you know, because I was a binge food. Give me coffee, put milk in the coffee. Screw you, Edie, you're not afraid. So, you know, I put milk in the coffee, you know, I eat the two soft-boiled eggs, I eat the apple for dessert. It was an accident you know, fairly normal abstinence breakfast on a losing abstinence. I get through breakfast. I oh, got through breakfast accident It was just amazing to me because I'd just been eating for weeks, you know. And, uh... I said, "Okay, oh, just, just get that lunch, So I get to the grocery, a little meat, a little salad, hold the bread, no sauce, you know, hold this, hold that, give me an apple, milk in the coffee, screw you, baby. You know, eat my little apple for dessert. I just go through dinner. I said, so I have the same thing. I have an abstinent dinner. So now I'm going to the Monday night meeting at St. Michael's, St. Michael's English Church on the right bank. Down the President's house, which I don't think that meeting's going to there any longer. But, um, oh, by the way, we get these French people coming into the English-speaking meeting, and, like, they try and, they see the ad in, in the International Herald and, and try and come to the meeting thinking maybe their high school English could carry them, but they couldn't, you know what I'm saying? And it, I felt like we were sending them out to die, you know, some of them are bulimics, they're starving themselves to death, and there was no French-speaking OA there at the time. And... Um, Um, So, I'll tell you this story now. I'll tell you what happened in France. And uh, I I get through absent abstinent dinner and I go to that St. Michael's church. You know, they read how it works. Anybody want to say something? So, my hand shoots up first one. I want to be the star of the meeting, you know. I got something to tell you guys today. I'm abstinent today. So, Morissette looks at me and goes, I'm abstinent today. Bob R looks at me and goes, I'm abstinent today. And the anarchist goes, I'm abstinent today. The whole group got abstinent on the same day, at the same time. It's a group miracle in France. And I always said, the greatest spiritual event in France is sports. And uh, it was bizarre, and it's true. And since that day, there's now OA all over France in French. Because uh, eventually Natalie started a French group. And uh, I've been over here, I've a couple times in French. And... Um, and uh, actually, the French groups is doing better than the English group because that's a transitory group. You know, people come and go in Paris and English speaking, and A, too, the same way. But the French OA is spread all over France. And last time I was in Barcelona, I went to Spanish OA, where well, I speak Spanish too, and I uh, pitched the Spanish. And, uh, it was wonderful, great experience. I had some good experiences. But anyway, uh, so for that little shaky flaky group, we now have uh, OA in, uh, in France. And I got abstinent in Paris with no real super strength around me like we have here in L.A. And and I think the lesson for me was, one, you can get abstinent anywhere if you really want to be abstinent. And two... I was in the now, you know. I was not looking to be abstinent in x number of years. I was not looking to get to any magic numbers and lose any amount of weight or this or that or you know speak a lot in no way or whatever else happened over the years to me. But I just wanted not to eat for that instant. You know, I just wanted to eat an abstinent meal, and I was truly in the now. And so basically, uh, that's what happened. And I got back. Got a little, uh, by that time they had the dignity and choice pamphlet. I got a new sponsor was a little more flexible and will uh, And uh, got on a couple of the other plans. And We don't even have food plans in are anymore. I think House Hotel, however really call it does. But I don't really think it matters. I think, you know, my experience is i got to find a food sponsor, get a food plan that's seen and workable. But I highly recommend And I celebrated in October, and I've lost the weight and basically been this, I've been passing for normal now for like 24 years. And I mean, uh, a lot of people don't even know I was obese, and I got stretch marks to prove it. And I used to be the kind of guy with the three suits of clothes in the closet, like anorexic, passing for normal and out of control. And I've basically been the same size for 24 years. And, you know, Ethel Merman said I've been rich and I've been poor riches there. Well, I've been thin and I've been fat. And thin is better. But also, more important is um, thin is not well. The real day of liberation came for me when I was sitting in an uh, old, it was an AA, it's the cold room in Miami where I basically got sober. But I was sitting there, I used to get my abstinent meal from the Chinese restaurants. Vegetables and meat, and whole the cornstarch. No rice. Rice was a binge food for me one time. I, I wouldn't go near it. But late, uh, it you know, I can usually handle it now in a restaurant. That shows you my food plan has changed over the years. I have to adapt it. It has to be. I have to be comfortable with it. I don't feel. I have. I don't feel I should feel deprived. I don't feel I should feel. I'm punishing. But I can't kid myself. You know, if I'm binging on sugar, I don't want sugar on my food plan. See, that's why I was food sponsored Feedback my nonsense to me. Natalie's my food sponsor, of the old timer. So, uh, I was sitting in a AA clubhouse. I used to go to the AA meeting and get my food at the Chinese restaurant. Take it back to the twelve uh, step room and eat and have fellowship. And I was sitting there after about, and I I can't. I think it was about two or three weeks. I've been doing, I've gotten an accident in France and come back to Florida and continue my accidents. The weight just came off. It just came off, you know. And I was still running, but not compulsively. I was maybe down to like four miles or something, you know. Nothing crazy, you know, normal like what a runner would do. And um, I was sitting in the AA clubhouse eating this accident, you know, and I just, it hit me like, I haven't thought about food in two weeks. You know, and that was the day of liberation for me. It wasn't any magic number I hit on my weighing. You know, I, I was taught weighing once a month. I still do that. I have the same scale. I weigh in. at roughly the beginning of the month on the same scale. Uh, uh, you know, uh, with no clothes on in the morning before I eat. I was taught that, and I do it. And that's a reality check for me once a month. Some people say they can't deal with the scale. They have it in the house. They're going to jump on it every two days, every two hours. Well, to me, that's obsessive behavior. The obsession's obviously not removed. Uh, but if you can't have a spiel in your house, don't have it in your house. I can't prescribe my abstinence or my food plan or my recovery for anyone else. I'll just tell you all that they used to say some things to me which pissed me off. But in retrospect, all oh, the as the French say, they were actually quite enlightened things. They used to say to me, Roy, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And, uh, you know, for a long time I wasn't a happy camper in recovery. I was known as Roy with the Resentments. That was my nickname in AA. And they used to say to me, Roy, if your program's not working, why don't you try Bill Wilson's? You know? I, 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 that was annoying. That was annoying. But in retrospect, it's actually true. I uh, basically. Got abstinent, the weight came off, and after you know I've had some rough times in uh, in recovery. There was the period of the great resentments. I've had nothing but problems with money. I've had career disasters. I've had obsessions over women. I've had I was a resentment hound. You know I uh, always get resentments, and it just forced me to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the steps. And uh, I I used the big book. I, uh the Oiler's literature is wonderful. I, I read that book. I I relate, like their comments on the traditions. I get a lot out of it. Same move with uh, A12 12 and 12. That's Bill Wilson's commentaries on the steps and traditions. And I certainly think they're worth uh, listening to because at the time he was the most sober person. But for me, I found that the big book works. And what happens is this. If you want to know how to do an inventory, here's how you do an inventory. Get a big yellow pad. And you start with your deepest, darkest secrets, the shit that you just wanted to go to the grave and not tell anyone. And in my case, that encompassed, I, I mean, I don't want to go to my wall here, but I mean, I was in a cult when I was here. I'm a pretty weird dude, you know. I and mean, I had some stuff that was pretty humiliating and personal, but I had to be willing to put, start with that. You know, an old-timer told me, you, you start with your deepest, darkest secrets, and... How bad an inventory can it be? On the other hand, if you're withholding it, how good an inventory is it ever going to be? So I start with secrets, I put down my secrets, fears, and guilt. You know, and sometimes they overlap or they're repetitive, but it doesn't matter. As long as it's out there on paper, the big book says I cannot lead a double life, I cannot present one facade to the world, but deep down inside, I hate myself for this and that. And then I go into resentments. What do I hate about other people, plays institutions, or myself? And um, and then I do the columns. And I always have the uh, fourth column, which is not in the book, but the questions are in the book that I put in the fourth column. Where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, afraid? Did I set the ball of fear rolling? Did I put myself, did I make a decision based on self, would push my, myself in a decision to be hurt? I answer that in the fourth column, which is not in the book. So, and then I always add the fifth column, which is, have I ever done this to another human being myself? No, I'm hating this guy for doing this. Have I ever done it myself to another human being? In my case, it's almost always been yes. And I went through that process, and what that made me realize is that I'm manifesting myself on my resentment list. You know, the psychologist called the law of attraction. It's nothing new. A lot of people know about it. As you sow, so shall you reap, you know? Um, anger begets anger. Uh, if you're in the Mafia, chances are you're going to be bumped off by somebody else in the Mafia. What a surprise, you know? When I was a drunkard and a binger, my friends were all my binge buddies or drinking buddies. So now I'm in recovery. Most of my good friends are in recovery. I will manifest myself on my resentment list. My character defects manifest myself manifests themselves in my resentment list. If I'm angry, I'm going to pull in the angry people to me. As a sponsor once said to me, positive attracts positive, negative attracts negative, passive attracts aggressive. And so if I'm angry, who am I colliding with? Other angry people, you know? If I'm a thief, I'm going to fall in amongst thieves, you know? And I manifested myself. Every time I had a resentment, and I did that process with a columns. I realized I manifested myself. And then I go home for an hour and I look at that list. And that's what the book says. It does, you know, if you look at the book, there's only like a couple paragraphs on the six and seven steps. And for years, I wondered if either Bill Wilson or God was on a coffee break when that section was written. And I later came to realize that the six and seven steps is written in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and nothing more than steps of contemplation. It says, take a look at this list. Look at this list carefully because it held the key to the future. That's what it says, a little throwaway line in the big book. I didn't understand that for years. But what happened is when I did that inventory properly, and I looked at that list. And was, you got all these angry assholes on your, on your resentment list. You've manifested yourself. Do you want these kind of people in your life? And the answer was, after contemplating, was no. And then it said, so then that means, well, I guess I better give up anger. You know, because I manifested myself. And then I have to take that list. And I always recommend doing steps in conjunction with a sponsor because... Uh, this is a weak program. It's not meant to be done uh, in, in solitary usage. It really is. Ever since Eddie Thatcher took Bill Wilson through his tests in the hospital, and he took Bob through his tests. Uh, when a, If a sponsor knows what the hell they're doing, you will do a good inventory. And I manifested myself in this list, and, then I, and, I, and I, every time I do that thing with the five columns, I went up with at least two amendments. Okay, you want two questions? Is that what you want? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I usually have an amend for the person with whom I have, against whom I have resentment because I've, I've answered the questions of my part in it. And I usually have, in a fifth comment if I ever done it with anybody else, I got another amend. So every inventory I've ever done usually comes up with at least two amends and sometimes more because I've repeated these incidents more than once. So the point is that if you work the steps, was laid out in the big book. My experience was the obsession was removed. When I'm telling you it was removed, no offense, and I don't want to sound too egotistical, but 99 out of 100 OA meetings I go to, the person who has What I want is me, because I'm not thinking about food. I'm not worried. My mother's coming to town next week, and says, Ooh, my issues are coming. I don't want to eat. You know, the obsession has been removed. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean I don't get scared. I don't mean I don't get guilty. I don't mean I'm not an asshole and I have to make amends now and then. I certainly haven't been raised to any sainthood. But I mean, like, the obsession's removed. I mean, my first reaction is not to eat over it. And believe me, I'm no saint. When I was 18 years on the program, I did something that could have put me in jail. Walter knows about it. You know, it it wasn't like ripping off stuff. It was just, you know, my my compulsive over reader, 300-pound brother said, yeah, sign this, don't worry about it, my friend will put it through. Well, his friend was a crooked administrator and he got in trouble, and I thought, oh, I'm going to do time, and I signed something that wasn't true. And my first reaction was not to go eat over it. My first reaction was, well, if I go to the joint, how am I going to stay absent, and can I organize an OA group there, you know? Literally, you know, if you work the steps, the obsession is removed and your first reaction to any kind of problem will not be the food. That is my experience, and that's what the book promises me. The book doesn't promise me I'm going to be thinking about food, I, I have to be worried about going to functions and, you know, because they're going to serve food or show food in movies or something. That's not what the book says. What the book says, if I relate myself properly to a higher power as expressed in the 12 steps, I will be given the strength to match calamity with serenity, which kinda implies what's coming for all of us. You know, life's not always roses, at least it hasn't been in my experience. Oh, I gotta quit. You know, there there are bad good things and bad things, and I haven't had to eat over them in over twenty four years and I haven't even been driven to the obsession with food. You're talking about a guy with three size suits in his closet and stretch marks and all these sugar in diet so basically um, I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunity to share this story and if there's any questions I will entertain them thank you <laughs> <laughs> and now Roy will you kind of repeat the questions into the microphone yes I will yes Gabriel thanks Roy you said it was that was actually going deeper and deeper in the steps mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on going deeper and deeper what that means okay Gabriel's question was, force did resentment force go deeper and deeper into the steps in? Would you elaborate on that? Well, my first preliminary, fourth and fifth, was my first sponsor, who was a whack job, who I picked, you know, because positive attracts positive, negative attracts negative. I was a cult survivor. I picked a kind of a cult-like abusive guy as my first sponsor. It's not an accident. I've since forgiven myself and uh, I mean, when I say this, I, I don't feel he helped me stay sober. I feel I survived. And two of his sponsees committed suicide. That's the kind of people he was. And people were telling me stay away from this guy. He's, you know, he's angry. He's screwed up. You know. So the point is, I did some preliminary step work with this guy which was basically getting some secrets down on paper. But I hadn't really thoroughly gone through that process where where, where the columns, you know, let me put it this way. It took about five years in recovery, you know, abstinent, sober, but collecting some new resentments based on my character defects. And to where it got to the point when I was seven years on the program, my second sponsor, Kurt B., down in Boca Raton, Florida, said, I've never met anybody seven years sober so unhappy before. And I didn't take offense. I knew he was telling the truth. So I had to hold on to some defects and manifest some resentment. And what that forced me to do it, was go deeper into this steps. So I redid my inventory. I told him all my secrets, Kurt B. I put down my resentment. and my first sponsor was on there, okay, because of the shit he pulled. And uh, but I manifested these resentments, and then I did the bit which my part in it. And he and that's why sponsors he cut me short and he said, "Sorry, but your problem is this, this, and this, and you want to be this, this, and this, and therefore you hate this, this, and this, and this, and this. And he got right to the heart of it, you know. So it pain Bill Wilson has something, that Bill sees it, uh, called the utility of pain. You see, it's not all the times I talk my way out of, uh, of stuff that got me on the program. It's hit and bottom. It's pain. Pain forces one to either, you're either going to get, you're going to relapse into the food, or in my case, food or alcohol, or you're going to read the steps and get close to your higher power. Bill Wilson calls it turning more to the light. He went through probably all-time record. My friend Theresa in Paris, she's called going through the wall. She said, ah, these newcomers are wonderful, I love them, but they haven't been through the wall yet. Bill Wilson had 11 years of clinical depression. He was alive lot today. They would have been trying to shoot him full of Prozac and every other thing. But he didn't have it. And I think it's good he didn't have it. It just forced him to redo the steps. He got Father Ed Dowling as a sponsor. He got his head shrunk by Dr. Harry Tebow. He, he had to rework his program. He still had depression a lot. But he it took, He got through it. I My resentments forced me to redo my inventory, do some amends that I really didn't want. The, the most... Crushing amends for me were not like rip taking back money amends. It was usually an apology to someone I felt had wronged me more than I had wronged him. And what that does is deflates my ego. Because when I write that fifth column and see that I've done the same thing to somebody else, then I say, well, I can't judge him. I've done the same thing to somebody else. If he deserves to get shot, then I deserve to get shot. Well, I don't want to get shot. So i got to forgive him, forgive myself, make the amends clean up the crap. But what that does is deflates my ego. There's nothing like apologizing to somebody you hate for ego deflation, I promise you. I've made, played back, I went into the Mill Valley Market, you know, compulsive over here, I used to rip off their food. Here's a check I used to steal from, I don't, I read about you guys, you know. I've never had problems with that kind of amends, but apologizing to somebody i hate is has always been the, the tough amends for me for this ego between Any other questions? We're out of time? Yeah, we have to do the 7th edition. Okay, we only go to 625. Okay. now? 625? All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.